You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Time to come to God's Word. On Communion Sundays, we take a break from our regular preaching series. So today we're going to be looking at Psalm 28, the Old Testament, as a way to prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. Uh, It's printed for you in the bulletin. Uh, Would you please stand, if you are able, uh, for the reading of God's Word. This is Psalm 28, a Psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I call My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, your word is, as the Bible says, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us, please, grace now to receive your truth in faith and in love. And please give us strength as we leave here to follow on the path that you have set before us through Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen King. Amen. Well, it's a famous episode now on April 23rd, 1962. Uh, Karl Barth, a renowned uh, 20th century theologian, spoke at the University of Chicago. At a Q&A following his talk, a student asked Karl Barth if he could summarize uh, his theology in a single sentence. Wonderful question from a student. Uh, But Barth uh, thought about it for a moment and responded by saying, well, in the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Well, I'm going to take a cue from Barth here because I know that song too. Uh, I loved his answer. Uh, and, uh, but that, you know, that song goes on. You young people know, right? It starts, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now what's next? Little ones to him belong, weak, but he is strong. That last phrase, they are weak, but he is strong, um, is really the theme 
of Psalm 28, uh, and it is a fundamental fact about reality. You and I are weak, but God is strong, and that's good news. We're going to unpack Psalm 28 uh, by looking at its three sections uh, under uh, these three headings. First first section, verses 1 through 3, you need a gift of mercy, not an award of merit. You need a gift of mercy, not an award of merit. Second, uh, verses 3 through 5, you probably are underestimating human wickedness. You are probably underestimating human wickedness. And third, the final section, verses 6 through 9, you are weak, but he is strong. Okay, that's the outline. So first, verses 1 through 3, you need a gift of mercy, not an award of merit. Uh, David didn't pray here that the Lord would give him what he earned, right? Just the opposite. He, he prayed that God would give him what he had not earned. He knew, uh, David certainly knew, that before uh, the holy God, he didn't merit anything. So David asked for mercy. Verse 2, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. Christians, you know this, right? Right. We, we know as Christians that uh, everyone, every person on the planet has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that includes us as Christians, right? Even you Christians who have followed Jesus for many years and have grown in your personal holiness, as the Holy Spirit has been at work in you and and in the process of transforming you. Even you know, as you come to this table, uh, that you don't pass Jesus your resume, uh, you plead for his mercy, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis said it well in his book, Mere Christianity, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. And isn't that true? So verse 2, David lifts up his hands. He lifted up his hands, and they were empty hands. And that's because he had no bargaining chips with God, and neither do you. Uh, No human being does. As you come to this table, you too come with empty hands today. As we just sang, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling. And it is significant that verse 2 tells us that David lifted his hands, his empty hands, toward uh, God's most holy sanctuary. You see that? The Hebrew word there actually refers to the Holy of Holies, right? That, That central place in the temple that the high priest could enter only once a year uh, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement for the purpose of calling upon the name of the Lord and making blood sacrifice for the sins of the people. The Holy of Holies was, of course, a place of holiness, but it was also a place of profound mercy. Because the Holy of Holies was the place where God mercifully accepted the death of a sacrificial animal instead of the death of his people for their sins. 
But as you come today, not to the Holy of Holies, but to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, you come to the fulfillment of Yom Kippur, right? To the table that testifies that the high priest himself also became the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, and died in your place for your sins so that you who believe in him will never die for your sins. You will, not, you, will, you will not be judged and condemned by your sins because Jesus has already done that. Now David was praying for mercy, but the prayer in particular was, about, that, was that God would right the wrongs of his country, Israel, Right? He could see that evil people were at work, that evil things were being done, and he was asking God to judge those people who were corrupting the present moral order. And he was was pleading with God as an act of mercy, do this also as an act of moral necessity. Lord, evil can't win. Don't let evil win. You and your righteousness must, must prevail. And actually, it seems to me that's a good point of application for us in our day, right? Have you prayed for our country, for our world? I mean, we, we talk about it a lot. We complain about it a lot. We get outraged. We listen to the outrage of others. We vent our frustration. We write letters. We vote for politicians who we think will fix things. But have you prayed? Do you pray? to the Lord, that he would set things right, that he would deal with the evil and the evil doers of our day. That is the most powerful thing we, as God's people, can do. Final thought on this point. Um, it's also telling that, that David doesn't look down on these people as, you know, even though they're evil, uh, he, he's not looking his nose down on them as such. Even, even as he prays that the Lord would drag these wicked people off of the world stage, he also prays at the very same time, at the beginning of verse 3 there, that the Lord would not drag him off at the same time with them. Right? David knows that he has sinned in his own heart, evil in his own life, and that God could drag him off with the wicked and he would be right and fair and just in doing that. And you get the sense in reading this that David isn't 100% confident that God won't. That request, don't drag me off with the wicked, is really another ask for mercy, isn't it? Well, if David wasn't 100% confident, friends, you, you can be today, right? We can have a confidence that surpasses David, and we can have, in fact, total confidence. You know why? Because Jesus Christ was dragged off with the wicked for you. Isaiah 53. 
Isaiah 53, that wonderful chapter in Isaiah that speaks so profoundly about the Messiah. You can't read it and not see Jesus, right? It's all about the Messiah, Jesus. And it says in verses 8 and 9, He was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked. Jesus was dragged off with the wicked. Jesus was buried with the wicked. So you never will be. That gives us confidence as we come to the Lord's table this morning. That's real mercy, right? Okay, second heading. Verses 3 through 5. You're probably underestimating the wicked. This is going to be relevant to, to, to Christians, and I believe it's going to be particularly relevant to any of you here uh, that is not a Christian. David is praying, as we've said, that God would judge the wicked in his world. Now, I'm guessing that when you think about a wicked person, you think, uh, uh, you're, you're thinking about a serial killer. Right, like like Ted Bundy, or a or a genocidal dictator like Hitler or Stalin or Mao, or a heartless uh, large scale thief uh, who may not kill someone, but they'll but they'll take her life savings without blinking, like Bernie Madoff, right. We, we tend to think of the wicked as monsters, right? In fact, that's the title of the new Netflix series about Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff, the monster of Wall Street. The problem with making the wicked monsters is that it makes them a, a very small category of people out there that excludes you and me. Right? It's, you know, if we can classify the wicked as monsters, then we can, we can, uh, we can say that they're out there. We can point to them. There, there's the wicked. But David didn't do that, did he? See, that's an error. And, that, and in that is, there's danger. Because according to the, to biblical understanding, the wicked are, are most of the nice and pleasant and agreeable people around you today? Who are the wicked people in a God-created, God-managed universe? Well, David tells us right there at verse 5. They're the people who do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of His hands. Those are the wicked. Now, they might be terrible monsters, but they're also much more likely to be nice, friendly, moral, upright people next door. They might even be outwardly religious people. But they are people who are living their lives without any regard to God. Right? God isn't part of their thought process. He's not central or, or important to them. God, what God wants or doesn't want is, is not considered uh, at all in, in their decisions. Uh, no regard to God. 
Now, this isn't just you know David harping in the Old Testament. The, the, the same truth about the wicked is, is in the New Testament. This is very consistent with Paul. Paul in Romans chapter 1 describes the wicked uh, as people who, who know at some level that God exists. In fact, Paul says that every person on the planet knows at some level that God exists, how from what God has made. Right. But what they do is suppress that knowledge and, says Paul, they don't honor God as God or give thanks to him. And that's really Paul's way of saying what David says right here in Psalm 28, right? Who, pe- people who don't regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, people who don't honor God as God or give thanks to him, same group, right? God is really absent, practically absent from, from their lives. We tend to be blind to this, right? Blind to the way we so profoundly presume on God and how evil and offensive that presumption is. Think about it. Every person in this room, not to mention every person on the planet, exists because of God, continues to uh, uh, live because of God, takes his or her next breath because of God. If God took his sovereign oversight of your life away for a moment, you would cease to exist. The New Testament tells us that it is in the Lord that we live and move and have our being. If you choose to live without the Lord, then, you'll, then, then, then life goes away, right? Um, Movement goes away. Being goes away. And yet that's how countless people live. Still, right? They, they are living, uh, at millions of people living as if God's a non-entity. It really is wicked. And when God is in your relevancy in your life, what happens is, of course, you're not, since you're not living for God, you, you end up living for yourself, which makes you small. Uh, that's what David is getting at in verse 3 when he says, the wicked are those people who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Um, you know, they'll be friendly and nice so long as as you can benefit them, right? Because that's what they're really living for. Their their life is about maximizing their lives, their comfort, their pleasure, their plans, their goals. And and so they'll be friendly and nice so long as you can benefit them. That's who they're living for themselves. But as soon as you can't benefit them, You know, they may they they may go away, uh, or or you may see another side of them, right? I I I I, I experienced this when I in a big in a dramatic way, uh, at least dramatic for me, when I when I left my first career as an attorney, you know, in order to preach the gospel, and some people, not all. But some people who had been friendly and cordial to me 
when I could benefit them as, as a lawyer, pretty quickly stopped being friendly and cordial when I was of no practical value to them. They did not need a preacher of the gospel. And in fact, a few became outright hostile. Right. Listen, the wicked will be ultimately judged by God. That's what David is praying for here. But it's remarkable how David prays for their judgment, right? It's, it's remarkable what he asks for. You'd think, right, Old Testament, uh, that, that he would, uh, you know, David would pray that, uh, you know, God would throw them into hell. God would send fire down from heaven and incinerate them. Uh, but no, he doesn't do that. In fact, his, his prayer for them is, is remarkable. He, he prays, verse 4, give to them according to the work of their hands. R- render them their due reward. Dave, David is praying that God would judge them, how? By giving them what they want. Giving them what they've worked for. And again here, we see a, a parallel with the New Testament and and with Paul's uh, wonderful analysis of the human condition in Romans 1, right? Uh, Paul in Romans 1 says that those, the, the wicked, the people who do not honor God as God or give thanks to him, uh, are judged by God. And how does, judge, how does God judge them? By giving them over to their passions and desires. Giving them what they want giving them what they've been working for. If you think about that for a moment, it's chilling. It's chilling, right? It means, right, that all of these nice, agreeable, pleasant people who are living their lives without regard to God, living lives for themselves, and doing well at it, Right? Good jobs, nice house, big bank account, fame maybe, power, reputation. Those things, all good things, may not be signs of God's blessing, but may may rather be signs of God's judgment. Because listen, if you have all of those things, good things, but you have all of those things and you got them living your life without regard to God, what Psalm 28 says is that that's all you're going to get. And that's tragedy. Because no matter how great a career is, no matter how substantial your retirement fund is, no matter how big your house is, no matter how much fame or power you have, all of that is a grain of sand compared to what you would have received as a co-heir with Jesus Christ of God's inheritance. If you're a believer here today, it seems to me this puts real urgency, gives us some real urgency in our need to get the message of Jesus to our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers, right? They, they, are, they are living 
good lives, but it's but their comfort and their morality and the, and their the blessings of their lives that God is allowing them to have are are giving them a false sense of security, a false sense of well-being, a false sense of even spiritual well-being, masking the fact that they are moving toward divine judgment as disregarders and dishonorers of God. That's serious business. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, I hope this is causing you to sort of ask yourself, some hard questions to to think about, you know, if God exists, am I presuming on him in a way that is not right, in a way that's evil? I would say to you, you, you know, there is infinitely more to life than fun and money and a good retirement. And all of those things, all of those things will end when you end. Death will, in the words of Psalm 28, tear you down and God will build you up no more. And so I say to every one of you here who isn't a Christian, don't let that be the story of your life. It'd be a tragedy. Turn to God by believing in His Son. Receive the forgiveness of your sins and know the riches of of God's inheritance. Third point, final heading, verses six through nine, really the, the point of the psalm, it seems to me, you are weak, but he is strong. Super important truth for you to lean into as you come to the table this morning. You know, God answered David's prayer, didn't he? Right? I don't know, there must have been a passage of time between verse 5 and verse 6. But uh, David received an answer for, uh, to his prayer. God heard and answered him, uh, which m- makes me ask myself and ask you can, you, can you and I be sure that God will answer uh, our prayers for mercy? And the answer is yes. You can be sure that God will answer your prayers for mercy. Look look how David described himself in verse 8. He says, The Lord is the saving refuge of his anointed. That's David talking about himself in the third person. He's God's anointed. Right. David knows that he is God's anointed king. He's... He is the king anointed by God to lead the people of God, Israel, who are in a covenant relationship with God. And David knows that God is unerringly faithful to his covenant. Whatever God covenants, he he keeps. And, And if he's faithful to his covenant, he's faithful to his anointed covenant leaders. And that's why David knows he's my saving refuge. Now, what we know, because we have more revelation than David did, that, that David, in fact, as the anointed king of Israel, was pointing forward to another anointed one, another covenant king, a better one, an ultimate one. Um, 
his descendant who would uh, remain on the, the throne forever, right? Uh, the clue is in the Hebrew word that's translated anointed uh, for us, right? The Hebrew word is Mashiach, which you, know, you can hear in that, the, the, the word Messiah. And, and the Greek word for anointed is, is Christos, from which we, of course, get Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed, Jesus Messiah, is the ultimate anointed one. Right? If, if God was the saving refuge of his anointed David, he, was, he is also in a greater way the saving refuge of Jesus, and he was. Now, you could say, well, wait a minute. He didn't save Jesus from the cross. No, he didn't. He did something better than that, right? He saved him through the cross. If God had saved Jesus from the cross, then we would be condemned. Uh, but... God was the saving refuge of his son, uh, the anointed, our anointed covenant king, because he saved him through death by raising him from the dead three days later, right? So if, if, if Jesus is, if God is the saving refuge of Jesus, then uh, he is your saving refuge. Because if you believe uh, because you're, because you're, as you believe in Jesus, you are united to him. You're in him. You belong to him. You know your prayers for mercy will in one way or another always rightly be answered by God because you are a person that his anointed son, Messiah Jesus, died and rose for. Let that give you confidence as you pray. And in closing, let me two quick points in, in closing here. I, I, want, I want you to see two other things that David says here. First, notice what he says about himself in verse 7. He says, the Lord is my strength. And then he says about God's people, you and me, in verse 8, the Lord is the strength of his people. Now what's significant about that is what he didn't say. Because I sometimes read it this way, or I interpret it this way. But David didn't say, the Lord made me strong. He didn't say, the Lord makes his people strong. Friends, the Lord is our strength. We're weak. You're weak. I'm weak. Right? We come here messed up. Struggling with sin, struggling with disease, struggling with discouragement, struggling with despair, confused, questions, doubts. We're weak. But Jesus is strong for you. He is our strength. He is our strength. Now listen, I know because I'm, I, I can relate to this, uh, for some of you anyway, as you sit out there and, and you know, for most of my Christian life, I was sitting out there. And I know what it was like as I'm sitting there preparing to eat the bread and the wine. There were a lot of unkind, self-condemning thoughts swirling in my head. 
Things like, um, I have to prove myself to God and other people, and I have not done a good job at that. Things like, I don't know, there's, I, I don't know how anyone loves me, you know, much less God. I'm totally unlovable. Or as, as one writer uh, expressed it, uh, she was thinking uh, as she, uh, uh, that God is tapping his toe, impatient with me, ready to walk out on me. You ever think that? Friends, it's not true. God knows you are weak. He knows you're weak. That's why he sent his son to be strong for you. There is no impatience in God. There is no unloving with God. There is no threat that God will stop loving you. Why? Because his son died for you. And rose for you. Your sins are forgiven. And Jesus is even now strong for you as he advocates for you at the right hand of his Father. As you come to this table, you put those thoughts away and remember that God is for you, not against you, Christian. Okay? And then finally, you know, what do weak people need? What do weak people need? Well, they need, you know, it's, it's, it's great that this was David writing the psalm, right? Because David, as you know, before he became a king, was a shepherd, right? A real shepherd, right? And so David knew that what weak people need is what weak sheep need. All sheep are weak, stupid. I, some, my daughter showed me a, a, a little clip. Have you seen that clip of some guy pulling a sheep out of like a ditch? It was stuck in the ditch. You seen this? Google it. You got to find it. Pull, pull it on the sheep. Finally gets it out. And the sheep is so happy to get out. It bounds, 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 bounds. Freedom! Bounds right back into the ditch. He's out like three seconds. Um. It's wonderfully telling, right, that, that, the, that the king who was once a shepherd prays to the Lord in the very last line of this psalm, be their shepherd and carry them, carry them forever, right? Because we're weak. We need carrying like sheep do. And, and, and of course, we know that that is a, that that, Prayer was ultimately answered and perfectly fulfilled right in Jesus. Jesus explicitly and intentionally took that identity, took that role, right? He announced, I am the good shepherd. And every Jew who knew his Psalms knew what Jesus was saying. I'm the one who will carry you, says Jesus, like a shepherd carries a lamb. Now, I don't have shepherding in my, uh, you know, in my experience. Um, I've seen a few as I've driven by them on the road, but 
uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a metaphor I understand, but I don't have any personal uh, contact with it. But I, but I do know a dad who carries a son. And that's the closest thing I could come to in a, sort of a shepherd experience in my own life. Um, I remember being a little boy and on several occasions uh, falling asleep in the, in the back of the car, probably with no seatbelts, um, uh, on the way home from wherever we had been as a family. And, and I remember, distinctly remember on those several occasions, my dad lifting me out of the car and, and carrying me into the house. And, and I remember in my sleepy stupor saying, Dad, do I have to get my pajamas on? I'm just so tired. Can, you just, can, you just, can I just go to bed? And he's carrying me in and he puts me on the bed and and I was just and he puts my pajamas on for me, right? And 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 tucks tucks me in. Um, as you come to the table that today, uh, you know, in a very real way, you you need to know that Jesus is carrying you, right? Like a like a shepherd carries a sheep, or like my dad carried me. Uh, He's carrying you with all your sin, all your failures, all your weaknesses, all your tiredness, all your despair, all your confusion, all your diseases, all your shame. He's carrying you. And he won't drop you. He won't drop you. You are his forever. Amen? Let's come to the table. Let's pray as we come to the table. Father, thank you for this wonderful psalm that tells us about who you are and who we are. Lord, we are weak and we confess it as we come here. Uh, But we also thank you and confess that you are strong. Be strong for us. And uh, the wine, let the wine and the the bread speak to us today, Lord. Um, Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton. Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.